Welcome back to Psychic Crime. I'm your host, Nicole Mann. Sorry about the late posting, but it's kind of hard to record without a voice. Now, I want to thank you all for listening, and it looks like we have some new listeners in Germany, Austria, Finland, and Serbia. Thanks for listening. We really appreciate your support. But if you really want to show us some love, give us five stars on whatever platform you listen to us on. You can also really help us out by stopping by our Patreon page. I've included a link below and throw us some change. Or if you just want to give a one-time donation, I've also added a Venmo link. This week, we're going to travel back to the 60s, a simpler time without cell phones or internet, a safer time when your kids could walk to school alone and stay home without a babysitter. Or was it? This week, we look into the case of Gertrude Bezinski, who would become known as the torture mother by the press, her house turning into a Lord of the Flies-esque hell that left one teen girl dead. Now, I do want to go ahead and warn that this particular podcast is going to have depictions of graphic physical and sexual abuse, which some people might find disturbing, and is definitely not recommended for young listeners. The crime is a combination of two different things, a severely mentally unstable woman and herd or mob mentality. This week we'll discuss mob mentality. Herd mentality describes a behavior in which people act the same way or adopt similar behaviors as people around them, often ignoring their own feelings or moral beliefs in the process. Think of a sheep blindly following the flock no matter where they go, just because that's what the herd is doing. And this isn't just pseudoscience. There have been peer-reviewed psychological studies conducted on the subject. In 2008, Professor Jean Sklaus and Dr. Jean Dwyer of Leeds University conducted an experiment where groups of subjects were told to walk in a random path inside of a big hall while not communicating with the other subjects. However, the researchers had told a few of the subjects exactly where they should walk. And guess what happened? They discovered that people who were told exactly where to walk started being followed by subjects walking randomly. But what's interesting about this research is that our participants ended up making conscious decision despite the fact that they weren't allowed to talk or gesture to one another. In most cases, the participants didn't realize they were being led by anyone. In the end, they found that it just took 5% of people walking confidently to influence 95% of others to follow them. And looking around, there's examples of this behavior everywhere. But one of the most infamous is Black Friday. Now the day after Thanksgiving consistently is one of the biggest shopping days of the year. It's also one day where you can count on completely sane and reasonable people to regress into wild-eyed feral monkeys ready to step on each other's neck for a TV. Why? Why do people forego spending a relaxing holiday with friends and family so they can get punched in the face just to save 30% on a slow cooker? An Auburn University study found that the experience of shopping can actually be enhanced when there's a large crowd around you, turning an otherwise bad experience into a fun one. What might seem objectively like a bad idea becomes a good one with a few more people around. Whether it's Black Friday or a 21-year-old's birthday party, fun things can quickly turn into a mess of screaming and hair pulling as we succumb to our animalistic instincts. Now, let's take a look at how this applies to this week's crime. Gertrude Brzezinski was born Gertrude Van Fossen in 1929, the third of six children. 
Little is known about her childhood, except that she shared an extremely close bond with her father, but had a frigid relationship with her mother. A further wedge was driven between Gertrude and her mother when Gertrude's father died in 1940. The 11-year-old Gertrude watched her father die of a heart attack. Five years later, Gertrude dropped out of school at the age of 16 to marry 18-year-old deputy John Bazinski, by whom she had four children. John had a volatile temper, often beating his wife for annoying him. The two stayed together for 10 years before eventually divorcing. Gertrude was granted custody of their children. Within a year of the divorce, Gertrude met and married a man named Edward Guthrie, who then divorced her after three months when he got tired of having her children around. Shortly after, Gertrude and John reconciled and remarried. The couple stayed together for another seven years and had two more children before finally divorcing in 1963. Around this time, the 37-year-old Gertrude began an affair and moved in with a 23-year-old named Dennis Lee Wright, who abused her more. She became pregnant by him twice, suffering a miscarriage, which people believe was the result of a violent assault, and eventually giving birth to one child. This child, Dennis Jr., would be Gertrude's last. In all, she had had seven children and suffered six miscarriages. Shortly after Dennis Jr.'s birth, Dennis Sr. abandoned Gertrude and disappeared. She was left basically destitute as alone and having to support her seven children as Wright had been supporting her financially. Now, occasionally she got support payments from her unreliable first husband and she performed odd jobs around town such as babysitting and doing other people's laundry. Financial problems were quickly exacerbated when Bazinski discovered that her 17-year-old daughter Paula was three months pregnant after a fling with a middle-aged married man. Around this time, Gertrude's health declined considerably. She was chronically ill with a number of unidentifiable illnesses. She stopped practicing hygiene and barely ate. Eventually, it affected her appearance. She had a receding hairline and sucken eyes and looked rather skeletal. Gertrude began to present herself as Mrs. Wright, claiming she had in fact married Dennis before he abandoned her, which allowed her to keep up some sort of look of respectability. In July of 1965, Bazinsk, uh, Paula Bazinski met with a friend of hers named Darlene McGuire, who introduced her to two new neighborhood girls, Sylvia and Sylvia's younger sister, Jenny. Jenny was 15 and required to walk with braces due to having polio. Paula took the Likens girls back to her home where they drank soda and listened to records. The Likens mother, Betty, was at the time in county jail after having been arrested for shoplifting, which left Sylvia to care for her younger sister. Betty had abandoned Sylvia's father, Lester, and basically kidnapped her two daughters. When Paula heard of the girl's circumstances, she offered to let Sylvia and Jenny spend the night. The next day, the girl's father arrived in town and tracked down his wife. He ran into McGuire, who recognized the description Lester gave of his daughters. She directed him to Gertrude's home. When Lester arrived, Gertrude introduced herself as Mrs. Wright. The two struck up a conversation, over the course of which the idea came up that Gertrude might take in Sylvia and Jenny as boarders. He had spoken with his wife at the county jail 
and they had decided to reconcile and travel the country on the carnival circuit. Now, one, no one alive really knows whether Gertrude or Lester suggested that she bore the girls, but eventually, Lester agreed to leave the children with Gertrude for $20 a week. Lester did not inspect the home before leaving. Had he done so, he would have discovered Gertrude's home had no stove, there was only enough beds for half the people in the house, the only thing Gertrude kept in her pantry were bread and crackers, and that most of the surfaces of the home were caked in thick layers of dirt and grime, and that they only had enough plates and utensils for three people. The first week of Sylvia and Jenny's life at Gertrude's home went relatively well. They attended high school and the normal teenage social functions with the rest of Gertrude's children, as well as attending church on Sunday. When Lester's first $20 payment failed to arrive, though, Gertrude threw a temper tantrum, screaming at the girls, and I quote, I took care of you two bitches for nothing. Before forcing them to lie across her bed with their skirts and underwear around their ankles while she spanked their bare behinds. Shortly thereafter, Lester and Betty came into town to check on their daughters. Neither of them made any reference to the beating. The next week, Sylvia and Jenny went through the neighborhood garbage collecting old bottles to sell in order to get money for candy. When they came home with the candy, Gertrude accused them of stealing. When Sylvia explained how she had gotten the candy, Gertrude accused her of lying and made her bend over the bed just as before and beat her across the behind again, but this time with a wooden paddle. Shortly thereafter, Gertrude's children came to her after a church social and told her that they were disgusted with the amount of food that they had seen Sylvia eating. Gertrude told Sylvia that she was angry that she would do something to ruin her physical appearance and forced the girl to eat a hot dog piled with condiments. When Sylvia vomited, Gertrude forced her to scoop the vomit up and devour it. Soon afterwards, Lester and Betty came again to check on their girls. Per Gertrude's instructions, Sylvia made no reference to the incident to her parents. The incident, which appears to have triggered or coincided with a sharp decline of Gertrude's mental stability, occurred in August of 65, when she overheard Sylvia remark that once she had been felt up by a boy. Gertrude burst into a fit of obscenities accused Sylvia of being a prostitute and informed the rest of the house that she was pregnant because the boy had touched her vagina. Gertrude then attacked Sylvia, repeatedly kicking her in the crotch. When Sylvia attempted to sit down, Paul threw her out of a chair and informed her, you aren't fit to sit in chairs. From there on, Gertrude only allowed Sylvia to sit in a chair with permission. Around this time, Gertrude also began allowing the older children to use Sylvia as a punching bag with quote-unquote games ranging from beatings to being pushed down the stairs. Why Sylvia's story so enraged Gertrude is pretty obvious. Her oldest daughter Paula was pregnant at the time and rumors about her promiscuity were all over town. The day after Gertrude kicked Sylvia in the crotch According to Jenny, as an act of revenge, Sylvia and Jenny told her classmates they had seen Paula and Stephanie, Gertrude's second oldest daughter, having sex with boys in exchange for money. When Stephanie's 15-year-old boyfriend, Coy Hubbard, discovered what Sylvia and Jenny had said, he went to Gertrude's home and beat Sylvia. From then on, Hubbard 
was encouraged by Gertrude to make frequent visits to the home and beat Sylvia or practice his quote-unquote judo on her. Also around this time, Gertrude got Sylvia's best friend, a 13-year-old girl named Anna Sisko, alone long enough to convince her that Sylvia had been spreading rumors about her mother. When Gertrude took Anna to see Sylvia, she directed Anna in a violent attack. Soon after, Gertrude told one of Paula's friends, a girl named Judy Duke, that Sylvia had been spreading rumors about her mother and pitted the girls against each other in a fistfight. During the fight, Gertrude instructed Jenny to punch Sylvia. When Jenny refused, Gertrude began to beat her in the face until Jenny finally agreed to punch Sylvia. In August of 65, the vacant house next door to Gertrude's residence was purchased by a middle-aged couple named Phyllis and Raymond Vermillion. Phyllis, seeing a number of children that Gertrude cared for, believed that Gertrude would make a good babysitter for her two young children, and she also thought she would be helping her out by paying for her services. The Vermillions arranged a backyard barbecue so the two families could get to know one another. During the course of the barbecue, Phyllis noticed Sylvia wandering around the yard with a massive black eye. Paula proudly told her that she was the one who had given it to her. Then, under Gertrude's supervision, Paula walked up to Sylvia with a glass of steaming water and threw it in her face. Neither of the Vermillions reported this to the authorities. Two months later, Phyllis went to Gertrude's home to borrow something. Over the course of the few minutes she was there, she noticed Sylvia had swollen lips and a black eye that had swollen shut. To demonstrate how this happened, Paula took off her belt and began to beat her with it in front of Phyllis. Phyllis again did not report anything to the authorities. Around the time that Phyllis witnessed Paula beating Sylvia, Sylvia came home from school and told Gertrude she needed a sweatsuit for gym class. Gertrude told Sylvia they couldn't afford one, so Sylvia stole one from the school. Gertrude questioned Sylvia about her new outfit, eventually coercing Sylvia into a confession. Gertrude segued from the topic of Sylvia stealing to the topic of Sylvia being a prostitute and threw Sylvia to the ground where she repeatedly kicked her in the crotch before once more returning to the topic of theft. To cure Sylvia of her sticky fingers, Gertrude burned the tips of each of Sylvia's fingers with a lit cigarette. Afterwards, she made Sylvia bend over while she whipped her with a belt. After this, all the smokers in Gertrude's home began putting out their cigarettes on Sylvia's body as a reminder for her not to steal. Sometime later, Sylvia went out again to sell old soda bottles for money. When she returned home, Gertrude accused her of prostitution. Again, Gertrude took her into the living room and forced Sylvia to strip in front of her sons and several neighborhood boys on the threat of beating her younger sister. Once Sylvia was fully naked, Gertrude handed her a glass bottle and forced her to masturbate with it for the boys. Following the Coke bottle incident, Sylvia became incontinent. As a result, Gertrude decided she was no longer fit to live with humans and locked her in the basement. The lack of a toilet in the basement forced Sylvia to use the floor. When Gertrude saw this, she began a bathing regime to cleanse Sylvia, who she started calling the dirty girl. The regime consisted of filling Gertrude's bathtub with scalding water 
binding Sylvia's wrists and ankles, and then dunking Sylvia into it. The regime was administered arbitrarily, sometimes once or many times a day, and sometimes not at all. Following the baths, Paula would rub handfuls of salt over Sylvia's nude body. During the period, Gertrude took on 14-year-old Ricky Hobbs as a sort of personal assistant. Ricky was an honor student from a middle-class family with no previous legal troubles, and he experienced a sudden shift in personality once he started hanging around Gertrude. He blindly followed what other orders she gave him, and many people speculate that Ricky was in an a explicit relationship with Gertrude and that she had seduced the boy into becoming a henchman. Gertrude's children turned Sylvia into a money-making opportunity, charging neighborhood children a nickel to gawk at the nude Sylvia or push her down a flight of stairs into the basement where she was now being kept when she wasn't being bathed or put on display. She was kept constantly naked and rarely fed, and when she was allowed to eat, it was bizarre things, such as forcing her to eat soup with her fingers. Sometime around this period, Jenny managed to contact Sylvia's older sister Diana, who was married and had a family of her own. Jenny outlined the horrors that she and Sylvia were experiencing and instructed Diana to contact the police to come get them. Diana ignored the letter, believing that Jenny was simply displeased with being punished and she was making up stories so she could come live with her. Also around this time, one of the neighborhood children, Judy Duke, the girl who had been forced to fight with Sylvia, went home and told her mother that they were beating and kicking Sylvia. The girl's mother replied, that's just what happens when someone gets punished. Shortly after this, Gertrude's Reverend Roy Julian visited the home as part of a program in order to see each of his parishioners at their home. While he was there, they drank coffee and Gertrude complained to him that Sylvia had been a very big burden on her and claimed the girl was a prostitute who had been servicing married men and gotten pregnant. Although everyone knew that this was in fact Paula. Gertrude insisted her daughter was a virgin and Sylvia was attempting to pass off her own misdeeds as Paula's. Gertrude and the Reverend prayed for Sylvia's salvation before he left. When he returned a few weeks later, Paula told the Reverend during a prayer that she had hatred in her heart for her, to which Gertrude stopped and said, no, 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 that can't possibly be true. Shortly after this, Diana did come by to visit her sisters. Gertrude refused to allow her in and tried to convince her that her father had contacted them and stated they were never allowed to see their sister. When Diana questioned this, she threatened to call the police and have her arrested for trespassing. Diana hid nearby the house until she spotted Jenny outside and then she approached her. Jenny told her she wasn't allowed to talk to her and ran away. Concerned, Diana contacted social services. When a social worker arrived at the home, Gertrude informed her that she had kicked Sylvia out for being a prostitute and Sylvia had run away. Gertrude then managed to get Jenny alone long enough to tell her if she said anything, she would join her sister naked in the basement. Jenny told the social worker that Sylvia had run away. The worker returned to her office where she filed a report stating that normal calls need to be needed to Gertrude's home. On October 20th, Gertrude called the police to come and arrest a boy at her home. Robert Bruce Hanlon was a local youth who had accused Gertrude's children of stealing things from his basement. He had come to the home in order to get the, his belongings back. When Gertrude refused, he attempted to sneak into the home and take them back. Phyllis Vermillion witnessed Hanlon being put in the back of a squad car and approached the police to speak on his behalf. 
as she had overheard their argument. Now, once again, Phyllis made no mention of Sylvia during her conversation with police. And on October 21st, Gertrude instructed John Jr., Coy, and Stephanie to bring Sylvia up from the bath basement and tie her to a bed, telling Sylvia if she could hold her bladder through the night, she could come back upstairs and sleep in a bed again. When Gertrude checked on Sylvia the next morning, she discovered she had wet the bed. Gertrude made her dress, took her to the living room, where once again she was forced to perform that horrific striptease for Gertrude's sons and neighborhood boys. When Sylvia was finished, she was allowed to dress. After a few minutes of nothing happening, Gertrude brought up Sylvia's quote-unquote lies about Paula and declared, you branded my daughter, so I will brand you. Sylvia was forced to strip naked, tied down and gagged, while one of Gertrude's children heated a sewing needle until it was orange. Gertrude used it to carve the letter I and part of the letter M into Sylvia's stomach. She then instructed Ricky Hobbs to continue carving letters spelling out I'm a prostitute and proud of it. When the process was finished, the tattoo, consisting not only of the carving, but third degree burns left behind by the heat of the needle, was so bad that modern plastic surgery would not have been able to correct it. Hubbard then took Sylvia back to the basement where he used her for quote-unquote judo practice before returning home. In the middle of the night, Jenny snuck into the basement to visit her sister, where Sylvia told her, I'm gonna die. I can tell. I'm gonna die. Shortly after Jenny's visit, Gertrude went to the basement and brought Sylvia upstairs and allowed her to sleep in one of the beds. She was allowed to sleep until noon the next day, October 23rd, when Gertrude woke her and once Sylvia was awake, Gertrude and Stephanie took her to the bathroom and gave her a bath. After the bath, Gertrude and Paula dressed Sylvia, then dictated a letter to her that was supposed to be for her parents. The letter stated that she had gotten into a car with several boys. The boys were allowed to have their way with me because they promised that they would give me money. So I got in the car and they all got what they wanted. When they got finished, they beat me up and left sores on my face and all over my body. They also put on my stomach, I am a prostitute and proud of it. I've done just about everything I could to make Gertie mad and cause Gertie more money than she's got. I tore up a new mattress and peed on it. I also cost Gertie doctor bills that she can't pay and made Gertie a nervous wreck in all of her kids. Just as strangely as the fact that Gertrude insisted that she used Dear Mr. and Mrs. in the beginning of the letter, she also told Sylvia not to sign it. The next day, on October 24th, Gertrude came to the basement and attempted to bludgeon Sylvia to death. First, she tried to hit her with a chair, but missed and broke it against the wall. Next, she tried to beat her over the head with a paddle, but swung in such a wide arc that it came back and slapped her in her own face. To stop the strange show, Hubbard stepped in and beat Sylvia unconscious with a broomstick. Over the course of that night and into the morning hours of October 25th, Sylvia beat on the basement floor with the scoop of an iron shovel. The neighbors would later report almost calling the police on the noise, but decided not to. On October 26th, Gertrude voiced her intentions to give Sylvia a warm bath. Stephanie and Ricky brought Sylvia upstairs and laid her in the tub fully clothed. 
They took her out shortly afterwards when they realized she was not breathing. Stephanie attempted to give Sylvia CPR, but by this time, Sylvia was already dead. Gertrude instructed her children to take Sylvia's body to the basement and strip it naked. She then told Hobbs to go to the nearby payphone and call the police. When the police arrived, Gertrude gave them the letter she'd made Sylvia dictate. And in the middle of all the commotion, Jenny Likens whispered to one of the police, get me out of here and I'll tell you everything. This statement combined with the fact that they found a naked girl's body in the basement prompted the officers to arrest Gertrude, Paula, Stephanie, John, Ricky Hobbs, and Coy Hubbard for murder. The other neighborhood children that were present at the time, Mike Monroe, Randy Lepper, and brothers Duke and Cisco, were arrested for injury to a person. Gertrude, her children, Ricky Hobbs, and Coy Hubbard were held without bail pending their trials. Charges against Duke Cisco and Mike Monroe and Randy Lepper were dismissed. Stephanie's lawyers got her a separate trial before it was set to begin, the district attorney decided to drop the charges against her. Meanwhile, an autopsy of Sylvia turned up over 100 cigarette burns on her body, in addition to various second and third degree burns, severe bruising, muscle and nerve damage. In her death throes, Sylvia bit through her lips, nearly severing them. Her vaginal cavity was nearly swollen shut, but an examination of the canal determined that her hymen was intact, which completely discredited, along with any ripping or tearing to the rectum, Gertrude's assertions that Sylvia was a prostitute and completely disproved the insistence that she was pregnant. The official cause of death was brain swelling and internal hemorrhaging of the brain. The case of the state of Indiana versus Gertrude Bazinski, John Bazinski, Paula Bazinski, Ricky Hobbs, and Coy Hubbard commenced in May of 1966. The prosecution sought the death penalty for all involved, including John Bazinski and Ricky Hobbs, who were only 13 and 14 at the time. Paula's time in court was interrupted when she was rushed to the hospital to give birth to the child that she and her mother insisted she wasn't carrying. And in a show of solidarity, Paula named the child Gertrude. Children's cases were made worse by the fact that they were all being represented by different attorneys. One for Gertrude, one for Paula, one for Ricky Hobbs, one for Coy Hubbard and John Bazinski. All of them worked against each other and attempted to shift blame against the other defendants, even though they were all being tried together. Gertrude's attorneys attempted to shift blame on the children, portraying her as weak, chronically ill, and incapable of preventing or perpetuating any of the abuse. The children's attorneys attempted to shift blame onto Gertrude and the other children. Some of the most damaging testimony against Gertrude was due to her own self-incrimination. She recounted bizarre tales of Sylvia being the neighborhood prostitute and of her trips with middle-aged married man, as well as accusing her of frequently starting fights in the home. To corroborate Gertrude's testimony, her 11-year-old daughter Marie was called to the stand. Initially, Marie backed up everything her mother said, until during cross-examination, she suddenly screamed, God help me, before admitting that everything she said was a lie, and went on to recount in graphic detail how her mother and siblings had tortured and murdered Sylvia. The young girl's shocking turn against her own family 
was largely responsible for the verdict. Gertrude was found guilty of murder in the first degree. To the shock of the community, however, she did not receive the death penalty. She instead received life imprisonment without the possibility of parole. Paula Bozinski was convicted of second-degree murder. She appealed and was granted a new trial, but before it began, she struck a plea bargain and pled guilty to voluntarily manslaughter. She only served three years in prison and was then paroled. John Bozinski, Ricky Hubbard, excuse me, Coy Hubbard and Ricky Hobbs were each convicted of voluntary manslaughter and sentenced to 18 months in a juvenile detention facility. By the time the now 17-year-old Hobbs was released, the severity of his crimes had sunk in and he suffered a nervous breakdown. He began a regimen of heavy chain smoking, which had severely decayed his lungs by the time he was 20. By the time he was 21, he was dead of lung cancer. Gertrude appealed and was granted a new trial and was again found guilty, though this time she was sentenced to 18 years to life. Over the course of the next 18 years, Gertrude became a model prisoner, working in the sewing shop and becoming a sort of den mother to the younger female inmates. By the time she was up for parole in 1985, she had earned the prison nickname, Mom. News of Gertrude's parole hearing sent shockwaves through the Indiana community. Jenny Likens and her family appeared on TV to speak out against Gertrude and the members of two anti-crime groups, Protect the Innocent and Society's League Against Molestation, traveled to Indiana to oppose Gertrude's parole and support the Likens family. They even started sidewalk picket campaigns. Over the course of the next two months, the groups collected 4,500 signatures from citizens of Indiana demanding that Gertrude be kept behind bars. In spite of all of this, Gertrude was granted parole. During the hearing, she gave the following confession. I'm not really sure what role I had in it because I was on drugs, but I never really knew the girl. I do, however, take full responsibility for what happened. Gertrude walked out of prison on December 4th, 1985 and traveled to Iowa under the name Nadine Van Fosen. She died there of lung cancer in 1990. Now, the fates of her children remain largely unknown. Paula moved to Iowa and assumed a new identity. Some rumors claim that she's still alive and lives on a farm somewhere. Stephanie became a school teacher and assumed a new name. John changed his name to John Blake and worked as a truck driver before becoming a real estate agent and minister. He was never arrested again. He married and had three children and has lived in anonymity, only surfacing briefly in 1998 in the wake of the Jonesboro massacre to speak for the first time about the Likens murder, saying that he took full responsibility for his role and felt that there should have been much harsher sentences. Now, that was the disturbing case of the torture mother. Join us in two weeks when we travel to France to look at the case of a prominent society family Desperate to keep the world from knowing, their legacy was nothing but the fabrication of one of the world's most prolific liars. In the meantime, I hope you sleep better knowing the how and why people do such awful things.